1: We thrive. I am Sandra Primo, and I'm Tammy Salas, and we are the Unruffled.
2: Hey, Sandra. Good morning, Tammy. How are you? Ah, oh, I'm sipping really lovely hot tea and looking outside, and it's raining. Which mm. it's just going to be That's... cozy today, I think.
1: Yeah, that does sound cozy. It is, it got, it, we had a nice cold spell and now it's back to very warm. It is very warm outside today. I just turned the air conditioner back on. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. We are living in different worlds right now.
1: Texas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is humid. It's
2: fall in Texas.
1: Yep. It, it, it is. It is. My son said something really funny to me one time when it was raining. And it was really early in my sobriety. And I was taking him to school and I was saying something about, I'm so excited. I'm such a lovely day. I'm going to go home and drink hot tea. And he was like, Mom. <laughs> You are like the epitome of a nerd right now.
2: <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. yeah, and your yeah, point I am. is what? <laughs> oh, kids, aren't they great? Aren't they? 14 year old boys just they got a lot of pearls of wisdom for us, don't they? Oh, they
1: do. Oh, sure yeah. Do. Oh, yeah. My kid, uh, yeah, he spouted a few off this morning. i tell you. some of them I could have lived without. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. But speaking of today is my daughter's birthday, so oh, Chloe, I love her so much. She's such a bright light. Sandra, she is nine, and she is my little Scorpio child. It's so funny when I just realized now who else in my life were Scorpios. I'm like, oh yeah, I see the connections here. She is, she is a strong-willed, uh, very opinionated young girl. She is going to do amazing things. I can, I can already tell. Um, but this morning she had it, you know, her idea of a perfect birthday morning involved me making muffins for her class. And so I got (laughs) up really early and made muffins for her class. And then she wanted to go to Starbucks and get, um, an iced mocha. That was her
2: plan. Nine Perfect. year old was like, I want the iced mocha from Starbucks. Like she knew.
1: Well, we ha- She had her very first one when we went to Chicago.
2: Oh, okay, okay.
1: And so, yeah, and so like I think it's special. In her head, it's like sophistication, or and it's special. And so, yeah, so she's only. This is only her second one. It's not like she gets them all the time. Or whatever.
2: Right, and they were decaf. I think you said they were decaf. It was a decaf. Decaf. Yeah, Yeah, it was a decaf.
1: Which I almost forgot to ask her. The nice lady at Starbucks said decaf. Right? I'm Like yes,
2: (laughs) yes, decaf. Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's nine. (laughs) Well, I miss I miss uh, texting with your daughter. I I know. I used to get texts from her, and now I nothing. Just well, her (laughs) iPad kind of
1: farted out she she just hasn't really been using it it's kind of aging and so she has sort of cast it aside but she's getting an ipod touch Today for her birthday, so you guys may be back on. Oh, great! The texting thing. Soon. I love
2: because when she was texting me, it said your name, so I thought these texts were coming from you. <laughs> it's just emojis. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, why is Sandra sending me 27 emojis? It's kind of weird. And then, like, and, and then she would say something to me. I can't because this was like a year. It wasn't this summer; it was the summer before. So it was yeah. like it's been a while. But I just remember laughing because at first I would think they were you, and I'd be like, hmm. I don't know Sandra that well, but this seems odd <laughs> coming from her. This is how she communicates—an emoji. She, she's a okay. weird texter, but okay, she's creative. <laughs> Got a lot of those sad faces, and oh, that made me kisses, and twins. A lot of twins, and I love the twins emoji. That's kind of my favorite. It says so much. Like same, same. Me too that's my twin. That's when I put the twin emoji. All right. This is going in another direction. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say, uh, a little something of something yeah, fun. You go. I can't even talk today, Sondra, which I'm we'll having get... trouble okay. with words as well. I'm so glad we're podcasters. We're very professional, <laughs> which you guys will see in our interview in a few. Um, I started, by the time this airs, it'll already be in full swing, but that's okay. People can start and do it whenever they want to do it. But I started this hashtag um, for November for gratitude, and it's called Tammy's Gratitude Tribe is the hashtag, and I've been posting my gratitude list for this whole entire calendar year and using my own hashtag, but I'm inviting others to do it. And Sandra, I am waking up and reading other people's lists, and it is so beautiful. Oh, that is
1: awesome. Is I, I so inspiring. clicked on the hashtag once or twice yesterday, and it was very cool.
2: I know. And I'm just thinking this thing is going to bloom over the whole month. So many lists. Yeah. So if awesome. it's, I think this is going to air on the 13th of November, and we're halfway through the month. It's never too late to start. So if you want to join us, you can go ahead, write a list. I do some prompts in my Instagram stories in the morning. You don't have to go by my prompts. You can do whatever you want to do. Um, but if some people look at a blank page and be like, I have no idea what to put You can copy mine. You can, you can even copy the things I put down on there. If they resonate with you, I don't care. It's all about just kind of sharing and trying to shift our perspectives and looking at our life, um, with a little bit more gratitude. So if anybody wants to play along, that's what I wanted to share. Um, it's, I really didn't fully understand how happy it was going to make me to do this. I just thought, oh I'll try to do this. This might be something, you know, we'll see. And with it on day two, I was already like, this is going to be amazing. I love it. Mm, I love it, too. Yeah. Love it. Oh, anything else big going on for you this week besides the birthday or this weekend? No. No. Um,
1: no. Birthday mm. is today. Birthday party is tomorrow. Not Ooh. having a sleepover. So that's kind of big. <laughs> <laughs> that's good news.
2: <laughs> I remember the last time you had a sleepover. Yeah, you do it up.
1: Yeah. not No sleepover this time. So,
2: hey. How'd you get out of that?
1: uh, she would to invite too many people. And I
2: said, have the big, par- have the big party.
1: We're just not, not going to have the sleepover. Right.
2: Sounds, yeah. Well, so. this, we had the stranger things party last weekend. Yeah. Which by, again, by the time this airs, everything's off, but, um, interesting <laughs> With yeah. teenagers, you know, like they weren't really into the show. They were more into just socializing and having the show on. Oh really? Interesting. Yeah. So they watched okay. the first one, uh huh. And then the rest of it was just giggling and chatting and texting and snapchatting and eating, which was totally fine. But we've never had kids over with Grady to do things like that before. We've I've, I think I've had like one birthday party for him because I'm just a horrible mother. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like parties normally, but in sobriety I've been trying. And um, he kind of organized this, and I helped get a bunch of junk food for it, and, and Steve put up some Christmas lights to kind of—I um, uh, I forgot to turn them and flick them on and off to freak out the kids. That's to, you know because of the show how those Christmas oh right speak to him. But um, it was really nice, and it reminded me like it was all about him, just like your daughter's birthday is going to be all about her, right? Oh, yeah. We can do this a little differently um, when we remove alcohol. Like it could really I'm really enjoying um, doing these things for him.
1: For sure. And I mean, I have to say that, you know, every birthday that my kids have in sobriety, I feel like is a do over for all those birthdays that that they had when I was not sober. And um, those birthdays were not about them at all. They were all about they were all about me. They were about, yeah, they were about me and alcohol and uh, however I needed to get that, um, you know, so a lot of times there were many adults invited because then it would be okay. No one would look at me drinking or, um, you know, if it, if it wasn't the case where it was mostly adults, then, um. Yeah, I made sure that I, you know, had a full glass or a couple stashed around the house <laughs> that yeah. I could easily access. So, yeah, these are all uh, birthday do-overs, and that's, that's how I look at it.
2: I like that, Sandra. That, that, yeah. that's, that's nice because, yeah, I'm with you. On, on my son's fifth birthday, I, that was one in particular. We did have a little party here, but that was all about me. Really, that mm-hmm. wasn't about him. And I Mm -hmm. ended up leaving and and going down the hill and getting drunk and getting in a fight with my husband later. So that was no fun. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, we don't have to live like that anymore, which is very cool.
1: Exactly. Um,
2: Okay. Well, I I was going to, um, next week, should we, you want to promo a little bit of what we're next? I know we didn't really talk about this, but next week is going to be our holiday episode. Uh, Right. So we're going to talk a little bit about the holidays and kind of what they were like and um, what they're like now. And that's going to be the week of Thanksgiving. So it'll be the Monday before. You guys can listen in while you're going grocery shopping or cooking your turkey or whatever. But um, hopefully that'll be
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about holidays because, whoa, again, they look very different.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So that'll be a good one. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about who we have on today. I know. I'm so excited. We were Um, so
1: excited that we (laughs) barely speak.
2: (laughs) I fumbled the first question, so if you guys are listening and you hear me hemming and hawing, and Anne, if you're listening, like, sorry, I got a little stumbled up on the first one. I think we found our groove, uh, but... um, But yeah, that first question was a little bit of a mouthful for me. Yeah, I had my own (laughs) challenges, so (laughs) you were not alone. Yeah. So let's say our guest um, for today's episode is Anne Dowsett Johnston, and she is the best selling author of Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. She's named, uh, or the book was named one of the top 10 books of 2013 by the Washington Post. And as an award-winning journalist and former vice principal of McGill University, she is the founding chair of the National Roundtable on Girls, Women, and Alcohol.
1: Ah, oh, gosh. And it just, it keeps going. As a journalist, and Spent most of her career at Maclean's, which is Canada's national news magazine. As a writer, she's made her name in international circles, appearing in, in The Atlantic, The Times of London, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, many, many more. She's the winner of five gold National Magazine Awards. She's been honored for her work in many circles. She is the recipient of the Transforming Lives Award from Toronto Center for Addiction and Mental Health uh the American Research Society on Addictions Media Award and many others um Uh, including the TA Suite Award from the Ontario Psychiatric Association for helping address stigma related to mental health and addiction. She is a seasoned speaker with an international profile. She lives in Toronto, if you don't know that already. And she is the mother of Nicholas Johnson, who is a psychotherapist who lives in L.A. And um, if you haven't read her book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, What are you doing? It's a must read.
2: (laughs) What are you doing? It really is. (laughs) (laughs) Let's shame our listeners right now into going out and buying her book.
1: What are you thinking? (laughs) It's a must read. She just beautifully balances her own story with real hard statistics on women and alcohol.
2: Yeah, isn't that a good? Is that how you would summarize her book? Absolutely, absolutely. And and to kind of like if you. If you are going to sit there and not go out and buy it this second or get on Amazon, you can have like a little teaser. You can kind of get a little primer into what the work is about because she talks about it really well in her TED talk, she mm-hmm. did a TEDx talk, and it's called Drinking and How It Changed My Life. So you can Google that, maybe watch that as your first introduction to her. She's also been on the Home podcast two times, so maybe you've already heard of her, um, But it was just a great, important book to me that I used for some research that I was doing for college, for some papers that I had written. And I had the honor of meeting her in New York in May, and I was so nervous, Sandra. I saw her sitting with Laura McCowan kind of off to the right, and I was like, I've got to go say hi. I've got to go introduce myself and tell her what her work means to me. And Laura had gotten up and walked away, so then it was just Anne. I was like, oh, shoot. (laughs) So I bumbled a bunch of stuff, you know, oh, I'm just really big fan. And um, later on, I saw her in a Starbucks and she was right in front of me. And so we started chatting about um, gratitude and her book and the book that she's writing. And we get into that in the interview. But she was so lovely and down to earth and um, and sweet and
1: and smart mm -hmm. and yeah, and well spoken. And like we mentioned in the interview, sobriety is the great equalizer. Um, so, and though we have a, we can fangirl and we have lots of respect for, and, um, we are all the same in recovery.
2: Yeah. Same for us, right? Yeah, just anywhere we go, when you meet people in recovery, there's kind of this it does it equalizes you we're the same. And I had to remind myself of that. And this morning when I I got up at 432 Sandra, so as well, (laughs) (laughs) because I was a little (laughs) nervous. Um, but I think it's a great interview and I hope that everybody enjoys it. And um, yeah, let us know what you think on the secret Facebook page. If you guys want to join, you guys can um, send us a message on Facebook and ask us to add you. We're getting a nice little tribe over there, which I love. We and are having great yeah, conversations. Growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Is that it? Okay. Anything else? Rate us I on iTunes, it. write us a review. I've been reading the re- there's a few reviews and um, I just, you guys are so nice. Thank you. Thank you. Aww, I think there's like 20, 23 reviews or something.
1: Oh, I need to check back in. I haven't really looked it in a while. Really awesome. sweet. Awesome.
2: So we appreciate it. So enjoy okay. the show. Okay, enjoy Anne. Good morning, Anne.
1: Good morning. Good morning, guys.
2: Yeah, thanks for being with us today. We, um, I first heard you, Anne, on The Home Show with Holly and Laura.
0: Oh, that was their first show. I know. Was it their first?
2: It was their first interview.
0: I was the first guest on their home podcast.
2: I know. I've listened to every single one. So you've been on there twice, right?
0: very good. I'm very impressed.
2: (laughs) Oh, and you have a total fangirl with me. So there's going to be more I'm going to gush over you a little bit later. But um, yeah, I listened to both of them and I loved them and I read your book and...
1: I read your book as well. Very early in my sobriety. I think I, I need to revisit it because it's, I feel like I, I've not, it's been a while since I've read it. It was so good though. It had such an impression on me.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I loved writing that book. It was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. Well, okay, well, we're going to dive into all of that, but we thought for our listeners who, you know, if someone who knows hasn't read your book, which I can't imagine somebody that hasn't, but if they haven't heard and they haven't read, then we would like you just to tell our listeners a little bit, um, you know, maybe how you came to the decision to quit drinking, and then we're going to delve into your creative process with the book and how you wrote that. But, um, but if we could start with, um, you know, how you, um, came to quit drinking, wouldn't you share a li- like maybe the short version of that. Sure.
0: So nine years ago today, which is amazing, I decided to get on my knees. I was um, at my wits end. I had been slipping a lot. I'd been to rehab. I was in real trouble. I was in my 50s, and I decided to get on my knees and beg for help. And I actually gave up drinking nine years ago today, which is a miracle because I could not stop blackout drinking. I was a workaholic long before I was an alcoholic, and my alcoholism caught up with me in my fifties when I couldn't. Um, I couldn't get rid of a depression that was, I think, very related to hormones, and I was drinking to excess, and it really took me by storm over a period of about seventeen months. And I luckily quit drinking, as I said, nine years ago today. So today's a very special day for me.
1: Aww. Oh, gosh. Congratulations. Oh, I
2: love sobriety birthdays.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yay. So special.
2: I so, know. Oh, yeah. Well, so chip days are like such an exciting day for me. It's like my favorite day of the month is chip day. <laughs> so do you get one today?
0: Today is fun. Um, we don't do that here in Canada where Uh, I'm from, but I, um, think it's significant because it means I'm starting my 10th year and I always told myself that 10 years would be really significant. So for me, it's the countdown to my 10th birthday and, um, double digits, which to me just seems incredible.
2: I love it. I love it. So, so you, you were recovering in the rooms, right? That's your modality.
0: I began recovering in the rooms. I have, um, I would have to say that I use many tools for keeping myself sober, not the least of which is um, being uh, part of the, I would call the women's recovery movement in the, the in North America. Um, and so that would include being part of a uh, fan group of, of Holly and Laura, that mm. would include my kundalini yoga that would include um my work with focusing which is a kind of therapy and um tonight I will go to the rooms but I will go to the rooms in part to respect how I got there in the beginning it Mm -hmm. isn't a a large part of my life now but um I'll talk about that a little bit later
2: okay I love that though yeah it is just a tool Mm -hmm. right
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. and my faith is strong
2: Hmm. Well, we, um, we've been talking on the show, uh, like Sandra, um, may have mentioned, but we were talking about, um, you know, getting sober in our forties is what Sandra and I did and how that kind of had blossomed our creativity. So do you feel, since you mentioned that you, you stopped in your, um, when you were 50, did you, did it, uh, blossom your creativity? Did it kind of fuel things? Did it open up that world to you? Did you see it differently, your writing or your creative life?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I spent 30 years um, being a senior editor at um, Canada's version of Newsweek or Time, which is called Maclean's magazine. And I had a very, very successful career there, a very flourishing, happy, rewarding career. Um, I was, as I said, a workaholic. And But I was always mostly an editor of other people's work. I was a columnist. I did have my own writing, but I focused a lot on looking after other people. I would say I had a sort of maternal role. So what happened when I got sober is my writing voice started to flourish. And first I wrote, um, I won a $100,000 fellowship in Canada to look at women and alcohol all around the world. And so I spent half doing that. And I wrote a 14 part series on women and alcohol. And in that um, period, I came up with the preface to my book, which is a look at what addiction feels like. Um, And the preface to my book, I think is probably the best part of my book. And from there, I sold the rights to Um, I I secured a really wonderful international book deal to do my book, which is called Drink the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. And that was so exciting because it was international, because it was a big book deal. And when I was writing that book, I felt the most Anne I've ever felt. I had grown up with a cross-addicted, severely addicted mother. I'm the eldest in my family and... I really have known addiction since I was a little, little girl. And so whether I was talking about my addiction or another woman's addiction or exploring what it was like to be a daughter of someone in addiction or my own addiction, I was, or university drinking or any other form of drinking, I was really comfortable writing that book. I felt like I was telling my life story and it, it was my life story. So my creativity took off.
2: Absolutely.
1: Mm. Oh, I love that. So you didn't you you didn't have any struggle at all sitting back down in your chair and getting right to work.
0: I had no struggle. I'll tell you what the struggle I had was, and it was a different struggle. And it would wake me up in the middle of the night. And it was, what kind of person wants to tell these stories on themselves? Am I?
1: Oh, yeah
0: was saying, you can't tell that story about when you slept through the alarm. I was vice principal of McGill University, and I slept through a major alarm. And she said, you can't tell those stories. You'll never get hired for a job again. And I said, yeah, but if I don't tell those stories, I don't come off as real as an addict, which is what I was. And I really needed to tell the truth. So I, tell, I told the truth and drank. And in fact, um, it was... People have said, wasn't that awful, shaming yourself? And actually, you know, the truth does set us free. I believe our secrets keep us sick. And mm-hmm. I have felt enormous freedom in sharing that book. Even two days ago, I was in Georgia speaking to 400 um, members of fraternities and sororities down in, in a Southern Georgia University and had such a good time talking about what it looks like my heavy drinking as a university student my heavy drinking as an adult so my creativity in telling that book if I never write another book I know that was my book Mm -hmm. my book and it was the book I was meant to
1: tell so you did you have any repercussions from what you thought you might telling the stories that you felt like you should be shameful of
0: You you know, the only hard part was that my mother at 84 agreed to have me tell her story. And I told a whitewashed, slightly whitewashed version of her story. She had a very gothic story of addiction that was spanned many decades. And I felt really badly because when she tried to read the book, she was um, really diminished. And it I think what I didn't recognize is that in her blackout drinking She didn't remember a lot of the stories that I was telling.
1: Oh, no, yeah.
0: That was hard. Yeah. um, But I thought it was very brave of her at 84 to say, I said, Mom, you know, the best thing we could do, I wrote this book for the still-suffering alcoholic, the woman who, like me, I read Carolyn Knapp's Drinking a Love Story. I can't tell you how many times I carried that around, and there's a little questionnaire in the back of that book, and I did it over the years and saw my drinking progress. And I thought, I want to write a book for the still suffering alcoholic woman who needs a book, needs a companion. And you know, almost not a day goes by that I don't hear from a reader. Um, Even yesterday, it was a young man writing and saying, my mom's an alcoholic, and I don't know how to deal with it. And I'm meeting him this weekend. So Wow, Mm -hmm. Anne. The book is four years old. It was named, um, I'm really proud of this, one of the top 10 books of 2013 by the Washington Post. And it is a real, if I never write another book, I'll be proud. It's a real fabulous um, um, part of my story because I got it on paper and I don't feel ashamed.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, there's something so... Um, it's hard, I think in early sobriety to fully believe this, but there's something so magical about just finally telling the truth. Like when I finally hit that moment, I think I was nine months, seven, nine months sober. I'd only been in the rooms for like two months and I told the truth for the first time to somebody in that room. And yeah. the world didn't end. She didn't hate me. She didn't, ju- or I don't, whatever it was, it was like, I, I just pract and then I could go back and keep practicing it. And it was so powerful that it, then that became addictive to me. Like, I don't want to lie or be fake anymore. I want to tell the truth. So you telling the truth in your book and having that resonate with so many people and touch them. Yeah. That's not nothing to be ashamed of. That's, I, that's gotta mm-hmm. be so, gotta be so proud of that.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel um lucky. Um I've really been wrestling with my second book in a way I never wrestled with drink and I know you know, it's just I guess maybe you're right, you know, from being in the rooms we get used to telling our own stories and um I've already been to a meeting today. I'll go to another one tonight and that's just um to honor where I got sober and how I got sober and you know really a lens through which i understood how i was able to find recovery which my parents never found and i should add that my dad died of corsacovs which is the most extreme version of alcoholism and mm. he came to that late and he died a miserable death and so genetically i'm set up i'm set up for this right i really am and it is um something that i feel so strongly we need to be You know, getting out of church basements and talking um, and and wrapping our arms around it, just like the mental health community has and saying we will not be stigmatized. We will we will own these stories. We will own the solution. We will own this. And in my case, I would say, God willing, we will be able to flourish. And as you were, you know, raising. Um, bring our creative talent to the fore, as you have, Tammy, I mean, my goodness, you're such a creative talent, and your art gives me such joy. So I just think that Mm -hmm. there's so much possibility and so much gets squelched when we're drinking so much is Mm -hmm. round that it is it is a remarkable thing to grow um, in sobriety.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah, it feels like a channel gets opened. And um and that it's been shut down for so long, but yeah, I, I, again, telling the truth, coming out, trying to, you know, you're discovering yourself. You're like in the infancy of your sobriety. And I remember carrying around your book and I would go to meetings, you know, it's like I almost had, those were my tools at the time, right? I, I was trying to gather tools and I think I was attending Holly's hip sobriety school during that time. Cause I was working on a project with her, the mantra project. And wow. I used your book and it was so important. And I ended up using your book as a, as a resource for a research paper that I did in my English class. So when I met you in New York earlier this year, I think I bumbled all that out to you. Um, <laughs> cause I was so excited to meet you, but it was really, it was really important. I felt like you had such solid information for me too. You know, I had read blackout and I finally realized I was a blackout drinker. I'd read that maybe five months before I read your book and all of it just was like shooting off all of these things in my brain, affirming the problem that I had, you know, and to be kind of validated and to read other people's words and their experiences and that whole me too. So was so important to me. And, um, that paper I did was on the marketing of alcohol to the modern woman. And so, yes, your work was invaluable to me. So thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I think the marketing is a huge part of what we've all experienced and what we've all lived through. And, you know, nobody ever shows the mascara running and or the morning after. And the truth was, near the end, I knew I was going to die a very, very sordid death. And it would be very, very mundane, like falling down the stairs or something like that. And I was truly scared of dying. I was truly um, not only scared of dying on that last day, November third, um, you know, two thousand and eight. I I wanted to die. I really I really didn't know if I couldn't continue. I couldn't stop blacking out. What was the point of my life? I was I was really being shut down, you know, cell by cell. And I think that to re-embrace your life and to find see yourself waking up and flourishing again is is a miracle it, it really is a miracle i used to in rehab draw these pictures of a snake on one shoulder that would be telling me to drink and a bird on the other shoulder that would be telling me to stay sober and i could feel both chattering at me and it's lovely when that snake slithers down your arm <laughs> i no longer hearing it chatting to you although you know i do they do say that the drinking is the one issue or alcoholism is the one disease you can have where, you know, your brain tells you you don't have a disease and it's okay to drink. I haven't had a drink for nine years. Why couldn't I have a drink? Um, And sometimes the public supports us in that. So it's just I think it's a miracle also that we've had the community to meet you in New York, to meet you and to meet Holly and to meet Laura and to know that there is this huge growing group of women who are embracing recovery is, um, we're very lucky.
1: I agree. I agree. I have a question and I got sober when I was 45 and Tammy similarly got sober, um, in her forties as well. And I think the reason why it stuck for me that time, uh, a little over three years ago, was that I reframed my thinking around it, because I had tried many, many times to either moderate or to quit entirely, and it, it would never stick. Um, but I finally reframed uh, my thinking around it. Instead of saying that I was having a midlife crisis, I said I, this was my midlife solution, because I was miserable. And... Um, it was, uh, I had, you know, I had tried everything else. I had, you know, begged my doctor for, um, medication. I, you know, had, had just gone down every path and, um, reframing it as a solution, um, instead of a crisis, uh, really set me on a successful path towards recovery, Can you speak, I know you you talk about women and alcohol an awful lot. Of course, that's what your whole book was about. But can you speak um, to how alcohol affects the middle-aged woman specifically?
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting because I'm writing an article right now, focusing, refocusing on that, and the new data that came out in August of this year, Journal of American Medicine, Psychiatry, came out with really alarming figures in terms of the growth of alcohol dependence in women, specifically in America. And it's clear that many of us are going down this path. And the truth is telescoping is real. Telescoping is real, meaning that we become addicted much faster than men Mm -hmm. and with the same amount of alcohol. What, I, what my book concludes and what I believe passionately is that alcohol has been sold to us, marketed to us, and also is seen as the modern women's steroid. And you know the picture. You race home from work. You have food to put on the table for maybe a family, maybe yourself and you know you're returning to work that evening with emails or whatever. In my case, writing columns. All my writing was in the evening, and I'd be overseeing homework. And sometimes I was opening a bottle of wine before I even took my coat off near the end where I would be chopping vegetables, pouring a glass of wine at the chopping block, and I could feel my shoulders come down from my earlobes, and somehow I could get acclimatize faster to my role as a mom or my role as someone at home faster or I could head to a party and I could get unstressed faster and get into the party mood or near the end if I was tired and couldn't sleep I'd have a glass of wine so we're using it for everything and I think the truth is what's happened to women in their 40s is that we see this crunch happen where You're successful enough in your career that you probably have a lot of responsibility. You are probably managing children or a complex life. Um, In other words, we've seen a revolution happen for women where we go toe-to-toe in the workplace. We go, we outpace men in post-secondary education. So Gloria Steinem had lots of hopes for us, but she didn't hope that we would have our own feminized Drinking culture, and we don't any longer see wine as a drug. We see it as a food group. It's if you're sophisticated, Mm -hmm. you know your wines. And so, having wine was my thing. Having a glass of wine to me was glamorous until it wasn't, and it was sophisticated until it wasn't, and it clearly wasn't. So, what I think is happening to women in their 40s is there's this incredible crunch that happens. And then let's talk about the unmentionable menopause starts. Right and your hormones start going crazy and your sleep may start disappearing on you and I'm much older than you are so I can look in my rearview mirror and see most clearly what happened between 40 and 52 and those the squeeze starts coming and the squeeze on your life and you're maybe not balancing everything as well as you had and sometimes the fastest thing you can do is open a bottle of wine instead of getting to a yoga class or finding some other manner of self-care that's going to take frankly longer than you've got and so it's not surprising to me it has been marketed as you know as I said glamorous and a wonderful part of mature, affluent living, and we've all bought it—hook, line, and sinker.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am um, used to own a wine bar, Anne, and in your in your book, and in and uh, maybe even in your TED talk, you said it. But the marketing of of the alcohol to the women—I saw it every single day, and the wine labels and how they were pitching those things to the to the moms, to, to women who had kids who were harried and and stressed out, you know, you've talked about that. I think the mommy juice, um, bitch wine label I thought was horrible. And wine, yeah. and, And, and they're just targeting. It's like, we're just, it's so obvious that what they're doing and it's, um, cheap, inexpensive bottles of wine so that you'll buy a lot of it, or you'll buy it for your girlfriends. And as a wine buyer, I thought, I mean, I thought I was above all of that. I didn't carry any of those labels in my wine bar. I was a little snooty about it, if I'm being honest. Uh-huh. But when I sold the wine bar and when my finances were not so great, um, those looked appealing to me. I thought that was kind of funny at that point. I was in the depths of my drinking um, in 2008, and I—that's um, why I switched to liquor because it was—it was, it was um, cheaper and right. quicker. <laughs> Um, but when I did that paper and I was looking at that and seeing like, what is my role? What was my role? Because even if I wasn't carrying those labels, I was pushing wine on all my girlfriends. Every event was to let's get together and have drinks and champagne. And it's not an event if you don't have alcohol. And, you know, we're, it was almost like a feminism. Um, like I didn't go to college when I was right out of high school or I did for a year, but I, I didn't take feminist studies. I didn't have that surge of feminism. I, I, I was born in 1970. So it was like all of those things that were happening and, and I was a little girl and I had the um, option not to dive into that. So this felt like a reborn, like it was already laid out for me. And I felt like I was seeing being a woman from a brand new um, perspective. Once I quit drinking, it just kind of dawned on me like, wait, I've been being, I've been played. <laughs> Yeah, you've been
0: played in, and I think it's amazing that you own a wine bar. I mean that's that's extraordinary. What what really bugs me, um, on top of, you know, the, the products that you've already mentioned is the skinny girl product and the you know, the the Smirnoff light that has the calorie count right on the front. So what you find when you visit, you know, North American colleges is that he's they're both men and women, young men and women are playing drinking games, but he's drinking beer and she's drinking shots and she is two thirds of size and she doesn't want the extra calories. So she hasn't, she
1: doesn't eat before. She, she does right. I was going to say she's most likely skipped dinner or she's having a liquid dinner, which is what I used to call it. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly, and she's at a total disadvantage. Right. And, and I think that, you know, this is, an extreme sport, equal opportunity drinking event that is really dangerous. And we all know that alcohol is the number one date rape drug. So it's, it's just set up. And what what's alarming is that that generation is not slowing down. So when, back to your question about what's happening to people in the 40s, as you say, You know, back to being born in 1970, you were you were coming of age when the alt-pop was at being born as well in the mid 1990s, and when that really focused on on the female gender and feminizing or pinking the market, as I call it, um, started happening. You were coming of age, so you've just helped put something, you know, really gel something for me. In this article that I'm writing because that is you were really in the crosshairs of the marketers at that point mm-hmm. and so basically you've matured with this strange marketing this strange pinking of the market and so we have to start talking about it we have to start outing alcohol marketing um last year 27 2016 excuse me alcohol the alcohol industry spent 2.2 billion dollars on marketing alcohol to Americans. And that's an extraordinary amount of money. Wow.
2: Well, well, I think what you're like, that it was the eighties too, that I think, um, so I'm coming up in the seventies, right? I'm I'm 1980s. It was like the Chardonnay, the working girl, the kind of the whole thing. And to be a housewife or a mother, at least in my household, I got the impression that that wasn't um, a good thing i got that you were just a housewife you know in quotation marks and so um when i you know that is kind of in, was the impression left on me and it was reinforced by you know comments from my father or seeing examples played out through um, pop culture or television shows um like you know i don't know it was like la law or 9 to 5 or working girl like all those shows were saying like the woman needed to be out in the workforce and to do it and to like have it all, you had to be this modern woman. You had to be kind of a little bit, you know, having your Chardonnay at lunch and that if a man could drink that you could drink too. And I don't know, that left a really big impression on me. I worked in a law firm and it was like everybody drank at lunch. It was the eighties. That's what, that's what they did. (laughs) You had a, you had a liquid lunch. That was it. And to keep up with the boys or to be, um, considered equal, you tried to drink equally and uh, that didn't work out so well did so, not work so well for me <laughs> it
0: didn't work out well for me either <laughs> and that's the other thing is that you know i think you can have a long you know we back to why you're 40s we can have a long trajectory of um you know, they say roughly 12 years um, from when your drinking starts getting complicated to when you're drinking. You know, you're essentially burn your day pass <laughs> and you're not allowed, <laughs> you're not allowed to drink at all. I remember once my partner of the time, my boyfriend, ter- waking up in bed and saying, "I said I blew probation last night, didn't you, didn't I?" And he said, "Yes," because yet again I had surprised myself by drinking too much, and I think that. Um, you know, if you cast backwards twelve years or roughly twelve years, if if you started, you know, drinking heavily when you were thirty, then forty forty two is roughly when, you know, the whistle should blow.
2: Yeah, it right, did.
1: You're right. right because it's progressive and it's an addictive substance. That's. That's what I think a lot of people just don't. you know, if they think it's just this harmless, um, you know, activity that they do for celebrations or whatever, until they, you know, find themselves doing it every day and then earlier in the day. and um, it's it's ad- addictive and progressive. right. Yeah. And,
0: and we don't appreciate that, you know, whether it's our favorite television shows or growing up with sex in the city, on the cosmos or whatever it is it's uh, it is surround sound messaging that this is part of a sophisticated life and we tend to other it's legal we tend to other the um the difficult drinker the you know the one friend that we all know who has trouble or that r- rare drunk driver or that person who's sitting on the park bench drinking out of the brown paper bag we like to think it's and the alcohol industry loves that we think, you know, the rest of us can drink responsibly, quote unquote, and it's just garbage. It's, mm-hmm. garbage. it's a whole I... s- messaging that's garbage. And what we don't appreciate, and this I want to underscore hugely, is that we're in the middle of an opioid crisis and we don't appreciate that. Yes, it's important. The opioid crisis deserves a lot of attention. However, alcohol kills more people every year than overdoses from all other drugs. And so we need to pay attention. We need to call an alcohol crisis in America, and nobody's willing to do it.
2: Right, right. I've, uh, it's yeah. too much money to be made, right? Too
0: much yeah. money to be made and too many lobbyists on, on, in Washington, and the and the lobby the lobbyists are very very active. So, you know, don't get me started on public policy or. or <laughs> <but anyway. laughs>
2: don't get me started. Uh, well, I think when I sold my business in two thousand and eight, I, I we had it for about six years, and I was having all kinds of moral dilemmas. You know, with myself, obviously, um, and with just that, I was like a wine pusher. And that that my livelihood existed on selling and pushing the substance to people. And I can look at that now and go, I can see all the signs where it started to bother me when people would call me and have me deliver it to their house. And I would be like, well, I would rather them not be on the road, so I'll do this. So I thought I was doing like the lesser of the two evils, but I was still delivering wine to people who I know drank alcoholically. Whether they called themselves alcoholics or not, that was beside the point. I know that they drank alcoholically because I sold it to them. Wow. And so that just started really eroding me and my soul and my spirit a little bit. And then, yeah, when I finally thought I'm part of this, like I only saw that really when I quit drinking. I could look back and think like, I'm really glad that I something inside me told me I can't do this anymore. I don't want to sell this anymore. I don't want to be in this business anymore, but I couldn't really fully put it all together until I quit. And I, I think when I was doing that research paper and, uh, reading your work and like, it it just all kind of gelled for me, like, okay, I I was part of the problem Mm -hmm. and no wonder I struggled so much with it. Well, and especially
1: like with, you know, mom's and going back to moms and and drinking and moms and and wine marketed to mothers, uh, you know, the marketing is saying drink, drink, drink this. This will you know alleviate your stress. This is your mommy juice. But don't drink too much. It's like there's in, this invisible line that no one can define. <laughs> So, but, you know, but you know that when you cross it, you're going to be shamed. It's like, you know, don't drink, don't, for God's sakes, don't drink and drive and don't ever drink and drive with your children in the car. You know, it's this undefined line that, that is so obscure and, and, you know, and so it's just, it just amazes me all of the time and the only way that uh that i think we can understand um what it means is to keep talking about it that's <laughs> what i'm trying to say yeah yeah
0: i, I think we framed Back to your question about women in their 40s. I think we've framed motherhood as something to be survived. And there's a reason for that, which is that we have been living through a major, major social revolution, which is women, you know, joining the workforce at a remarkable level. And we haven't solved the childcare solution. And women, there's amazing data that I've got in my book about women being less happy than they were in the 70s and being incredibly overburdened and still doing the lion's share of housework and child care. And so we are really pitching motherhood as something to be survived, to be managed, and that wine is mother's little helper. And when I look at that, where have we actually progressed from my mother, who was, I'll call it a Betty Ford drinker, which was mixing Valium and alcohol which is basically mother's little helper of the 1960s so have we come so far really we haven't we're just right. it's just a different framework and try and buy a birthday card for a woman that doesn't say it must be one o'clock somewhere you know <laughs> yes and or, or you know um this incredible toronto where i live um mom's t.o wine festival which i wrote about um recently which is mothers getting together for a full day of a wine festival with wine sponsors babies in tow and their slogan is you know uh, unbelievable wine on the lips baby on the hips and my question is who's who's driving home who's driving right. home? they're getting together for rosé at eleven thirty every friday um and drinking rosé with their babies who's driving
2: well, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: so this is a really interesting subject.
2: Yeah. Well, I saw, that, I saw that ad campaign for that festival, and it was like a, just a firestorm of sober ladies in our tribe. We're like, what is this? Like, what are, what are they thinking? Wine on the lips, baby on the hips. Yep.
0: Wine on the lips, baby on the hips. And, you know, um, it, it was really pushing. All the lingo was pushing extreme drinking. Yeah. I got a lot of backlash i wrote an op-ed in canada's biggest newspaper and i got a lot of backlash because you know women were angry don't you think we're responsible of course if it were men you wouldn't be so upset i would be as upset if it was you know a group of men getting to drink beer holding the babies on their laps i would be just as upset yeah but um that's that wasn't the way i was painted.
2: No, and they're not going to market that to men. They're going to market it to women because women, cause women are already doing it. We're already going, you know, to to play dates and having champagne and seeming like it's okay to do that. You know, it's just a glass of champagne while the kids play. No. No, I mean, I'm guilty of all of this, of, of the driving with the kid in the car. Um, not, you know, not proud of any of it, but going to play dates and having wine and seeming like it was so sophisticated. And I live in wine country. I live in Sonoma County. It's just what you do is what I thought or what I told myself. Um, but when you can step back and change that story and really look at it and say like, it's, that's not just what you do. That's not what a responsible parent does. doesn't drive around in the, with their kid in the car, like that is completely, I don't know how I thought that was okay. Right. But I was in my worst of my drinking and it just, I justified it and, and I lied about it too. So there's that.
1: Well, <laughs> that was the point I was trying to make It's because the marketing was telling you that it's okay, you know, well, it's obviously okay. They said it's okay. They're, they're marketing this to me. All of my friends are doing it. So it must be fine. And, you know, but God forbid you drink too much and you, you know, get pulled over with your children in the car, then you're shamed. Then you've done it wrong. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> right. Kind of you got
2: rough. caught. <laughs> right. Yeah. So well, put. well in, in, um I was watching your TED talk the other day and you talked about how when you when you did come out, you know, you kind of became like the poster girl, right? Because... That's Can you expound on that a little bit and about how that was coming out and and how people might have viewed your coming out? Because you weren't this low bottom that we visualize sometimes. You were high bottom.
0: I was very high bottom. I didn't crack up a car. I didn't lose my home. I didn't lose my family. I did, in the end, lose my partner, which was really tragic for me, but I didn't lose those things. And um, I really defined. Find myself as the poster girl because I was highly educated professional, had a very significant job when, when I blew the whistle on myself and took myself to rehab and it was, um, I really for a while, I went to rehab in the States and I thought I'd just slink back to Toronto, my hometown, and wouldn't really mention it to anybody because I had a whole group of people thinking I really didn't belong in AA, I was, um, the kind of person who would go to my book club and I would, one of my best friends didn't believe I was an alcoholic because I would go to the book club, I would drink exactly what everybody else did and then I would come home and open a bottle of wine. It was a really secret, isolating drinker and until the very end when I wasn't hiding it from anybody. And so um, I found it, I guess I lived with a mother who, you know, was we lived in an upper middle class family. And the notion was you weren't allowed to tell anybody. And I grew up in an era of such secrecy that you weren't allowed to tell anybody that it felt liberating to talk about it. And by that point, everybody who loved me dearly, and my son, my partner, my sister, um, they knew, and most specifically, my Favorite cousin who was exactly my age had been killed by a drunk driver in 2007. He was killed on Father's Day and mm. he had his youngest of four children in the front seat and she ended up brain damaged. And oh my gosh. Um, I got drunk at the wake. Imagine how popular I was mm. getting blackout drunk at the wake for someone killed by a drunk driver. Not popular. No. And so that was my really, that was my bottom. Mm. And that was my wake up call that I was in I was way out of control and I had no control. I mean my I I think others probably share this but um when I blew the whistle on myself I found I couldn't stop. I mean which is why I ended up in AA and I I was incredibly um yeah, I was in trouble. <laughs> A lot of trouble. Yeah. And so um Doing my TED Talk, owning it, and really seeing what I would call the cusp and the beginning of a revolution in terms of recovery, in terms of faces and voices of recovery, in terms of recovering out loud, um, was exciting. I found it exciting. I found it, um, that 14-part series that I told you about that I wrote in the Toronto Star, I asked them if I could tell my own story. And they said, are you independently wealthy? Because you'll never get a job again. So I didn't tell my story. And I had alcoholics saying, you don't know what you're talking about. So it was a relief to finally. Mm. Not only do I know what I'm talking about, I've lived it. It's been hell. And let's start a tribe, as you call it, a tribe of women who are going to. And I I ended my series saying, Um, here's a challenge, others should tell their story, and I found person after person would agree to, and then say, oh no, my sponsor says I can't, or I'm not allowed to, and for a while, it looked stalled, and it didn't look like anybody was going to own it, and then all of a sudden, as you saw in New York City in the spring, we have a tribe of women, and we're 500 strong, and so many more than that 500 willing to own it, and I just think we're part of a revolution,
1: Hmm. I agree. Well, that that brings me to another question I wanted to ask you. Then, is it in this? Is it because we're completely immersed in the recovery world, or does it, is there really something happening in the culture around alcohol awareness? Do you feel a shift going on?
0: Well, I think we know in the recovery world there is. Right. I, my question is, how much does it? Is it really having an impact on that? Really interesting group that is referred to as the French paradox, and the French paradox is that whole the, is that whole group of, of the of the public who are not alcoholic. So we're only up to four percent of the population, but the wider group that is is normalizing binge drinking. So they haven't crossed over and may never cross over into alcoholism. Um, but they binge drink on Saturday nights mm. it's uh, is that group even know about us <laughs> right. you know, do they see I mean we all know who Tommy Rosen is we know all know who when probably all your listeners know who we mean when we say Holly and Laura um, hopefully people are reading my book drink but do others know about this um, community of people who are really trying to change the way we look at it and I'm I'm just on the road solidly. I just, um, I think I've been in 12 cities in the last three weeks talking constantly about this subject. And I just believe as much as we can, we need to be loud and we need to recover out loud. And because there are people, as I said, contacting me almost on a daily basis saying, I need help or I got help or thank you for your book for giving me help. And can I talk to you? Can I find a way to, to learn more? People want to be part of this. And so I do think it's a revolution. How much it's impacting the general public, though, especially when I hit America and I see the price of booze is so cheap yeah. and so available, and it's so, the advertising is so um, surround sound. Um, I just can't imagine that we're making, and, and it's so present on television and in movies, and mm-hmm. the notion that, you know, look at the good wife. You, she has a case, and and she goes home, drinks wine, or carry on Homeland, you know, is all of a sudden in a dangerous situation, and you know you're worried about her because she doesn't drink, but she opens her fridge door and pours a glass of wine. Um, it is messaging all the time on the fact that, you know, you, you have stress. Oh my God, you need a drink. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That was the, that was the, um, solution. Well, you know, for the feelings just to, to take that edge off or whatever I thought that, you know, that I needed to do. And I still get those kind of uncomfortable feelings. Like those don't, those feelings don't go away, but I have a a very different way, um, to solve them now but yeah, you're right. It's in, it's in everything in print media and on television and movies. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit since I know we're, we're a little bit into the interview here, but a little bit about your creative process, because I took your wonderful workshop when I was at the she recovers conference in New York, I was so excited. I took all these wonderful notes and I came back and we talked on the pod about it a little bit. And your index card system just was like a revelation to me. And um, I have a little bag now that I carry index cards in and my pen. And so when one of my thoughts or memories from my past or something that makes sense to me in my own story, I jot those down and put them in there. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your creative process and just how you um, came to write Drink. Well,
0: thanks. I mean, I'd love to talk about it. Um, Drink is cobbled together um partly from my journals and i since i was nine um have been a daily diary writer and sometimes i think it's foolish waste of energy and then when i was writing drink i was so grateful for them because i had such amazing notes from my life and um there's a thread that runs through it which is my story runs through this this book and so um I'm a big believer in daily journaling. I'm a big believer in my case, in rising very, very early. And by very early, when I was writing drink, I was getting up for the most part at 3.30 or 4.00 and then near the end at one thirty. So I, um, and no, I wasn't going to bed at 7.30 at night. I was <laughs> at so, um, but I believe in siestas. So my my way of, my creative process is to, Plumb whatever it is that you think that you want to say. And then from my 30 years as a magazine editor, I'm a big believer in index cards where you start putting together so one is inspiration, but one is structure. So you need a narrative thread. How do you how do you wrap a lasso around this, you know, raging goal of a story and and you can't organize it? Well, that's where index cards or stickies come in. And I'm a big believer in either Giving yourself a floor or a wall in your in your home where you can say this is my creative whiteboard or my wall where you can take the ideas or the chapters and you can shuffle them or move them around. In my case, I use yellow stickies or pink stickies and I put them on the wall and I reorganize the book till it makes sense. And I'm a very visual person as you are, so I find myself looking at the wall and saying okay I've got this chapter here it really doesn't flow where could it go and so those are some of my little tricks um my other trick is don't miss a day writing if you miss a day writing I believe the muse gets angry and very jealous and will make your next day writing a lot harder and (laughs) like what I say harder is You know, if you don't have three hours to give over to a writing day, don't bother writing because you won't get where you need to go. So if you can give seven days a week, at least an hour every day, you won't find yourself the subsequent day waking up and saying, I have no idea where I was going with this. I can't get the juices flowing. I can't get back there. So. I guess those are my three tricks. Um, know your know your productive time. For me, it's early morning. I'm, I'm no good in the evening anymore. Um, know that you deserve um, to have some kind of nap or sleep where you regenerate ideas and do journal. And use your index cards or your stickies to get structure going. Because without structure, you know, people will say to me, why don't you start in the middle? And I'd say, are you kidding me? You cannot start in the middle. You need to know what your voice is. You know, Joan Didion says that the, with the first sentence, the whole story is told. Carol Shields, the great novelist, would say, no, it's the second sentence. Doesn't matter. First, second, third sentence. You have created voice in your first paragraph. So craft it. Craft it well. Craft it strongly. And, you know... Often I spend the first hour of each writing day correcting some errors from the day before. So I'm spending a third of my time correcting yesterday's work and then two-thirds of my time creating new work for the next day. Now, all that said, the creative process can be very fickle. My second book, which I'm working on now, has not gone well. It's been really difficult. It has been the opposite experience of drink. It's on grief and gratitude, and mm-hmm. it has been a challenge. And so um, it's, it's life. What can I say? Um, it's like addiction. Uh, I, I'm very confident, touch wood in God willing, about not drinking today. What's happened for me? Food. Food has ended up emerging as like that whack-a-mole game, one of my problems. So creativity is the same creativity can be fickle. And, um, I've just decided to see it as part of the game.
2: <laughs> right. Well, I, I like that you just narrowed that down though. It is a practice, right? So a lot of people ask me like, how do you do this every single day? Well, it's a practice. It's not, I didn't start off thinking I was going to do, you know, a, my gratitude practice every single day. You know, I resisted the hell out of it. Um, my sponsor recommended it. Um, but so do you, do you have a gratitude practice then? As I mean, I know you're writing a book about it, but do you have a practice around that?
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, not only do I have a practice, I'm in my ninth year of, of a daily practice. I think probably in nine years, I have missed maybe three days, um, mm-hmm. maybe only two. Um, I my First thing I do when I wake is a sponsor, the woman who helped me get sober nine years ago um asked me to do a gratitude practice here's what's interesting about it is that when i began to lose everything at 18 months and i did lose in a very short period um the three men in my life i lost my partner who i was to marry my partner 14 years dumped me my um so i'm spoiling part of the book um (laughs) Uh, My dad died of alcoholism and my son, my beautiful son, moved to the United States and has not come home. So all three men disappeared in 2010. And um, my Melody Beattie wrote an incredible book um, with a bad title, um, Making Miracles in 40 Days. Amazing book on being grateful for the difficult stuff. And my sponsor at that point said, now you're going to be thankful for the hard stuff, which is a very different gratitude practice and a very challenging one and a very rewarding one. So I changed my gratitude practice to be thankful for the tough stuff for Mm -hmm. a considerable number of years. And I've gone back to the old, more traditional one. It's always five it's always five items. It's never the same as yesterday, except for sobriety. And I'm always grateful for sobriety. But other than that, I have to change it every day. Okay. And I have a long gratitude list. So in other words, I don't say I'm grateful for sunshine. I say I'm grateful. And then it's a long sentence. Um, it is a huge, huge tool and part of changing my lens on the universe and reminding me that I have many blessings and corny as it sounds I believe it's a muscle and if you don't practice it that muscle gets flabby
2: mm-hmm.
0: and a flabby gratitude muscle is not pretty
1: Right. <laughs> no yeah you are speaking our language
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is my love language Ann <laughs> yeah, well
0: the first chapter of my next book um, oh. I talk about everything I just talked about yeah. um, and how I lost my I lost my will for my gratitude practice when I lost those three men and I had to refine it and reclaim it and it was the hardest thing I've ever done it was harder than giving up drinking it was mm-hmm. harder than um, losing my I guess I lost my faith in in the goodness of the world for a while and I had to use my gratitude practice to get it back
2: it seems to me, uh, not that it's, you know, easy in this really, well, I don't know, I'll just say it's, it's easier for me to write gratitude lists when I am having a hard time. Um, I don't know where that ease comes from, but I, it's maybe cause I need to see it maybe because I need to, um, to find some good, uh, when my friend was dying in, um, February and I was with her for most of that month. I was, you know, writing my lists and I couldn't, I was, they were overflowing the things that were coming out of me because I was seeing kind of, you know, you're at this moment at the end of someone's life, but you're seeing all this love around them, so much good in people. Um, I think a lot of that was because I was sober too. Had I been drinking, I would have been very dramatic. And I think that would have really changed the lens in which I saw what people were doing or how they were doing it. Um, I found a lot of strength in that. And when I say easy, not just, uh, maybe that's the wrong word. It just came to me. It was effortless, I guess is what it was, is that I could, I could tap into something there that I needed to. And I think that's because I had been practicing with my gratitude circle and I could see how they were finding when they were all having rough times, their lists were so beautiful to me um, Sandra's in particular, she was having some hard times and I would see how she just viewed that and how she worded it. And I thought, what a beautiful way to look at life. And, just yeah,
0: Isn't that gorgeous?
1: yeah, you know, because the opposite of that is, is, you know, just to validate your, uh, we all want to validate our sadness, our grief, our fears, and just sort of, you know, marinate in our pity parties, you know, that's actually how I lived my entire life (laughs) before I got sober. Um, And then I would call a friend and, and they would validate my pity party as well. And um, it's just such a different way to live, right? uh, When you can live in gratitude and then actually write it on paper There's something about the ritual, and it makes it more tangible, too. I really think it does rewire our brains as well. I know that there's probably research on that, and we haven't found the exact bit of research, but I think it really does rewire your brain, too.
0: Yeah, there's a ton of research on not only what it does for your brain, but what it does for your heart, what it does for your blood pressure. I mean, the Greater Good Science Center out of... um, berkeley has been focusing on this for a long time and all the researchers associated with it there's tons of data and i think we all know intuitively that it does that because we're all we're all singing the praises and you know Mm -hmm. from the same hymn book and um long before tammy i knew who you were really i was inspired by what you were doing and someone told me to get in touch with you because they knew I was writing about gratitude. So I think this is just wonderful. We're having this conversation and I think to state the obvious and I'd love to know what you think. Once you've done your gratitude list for long enough, sooner or later the question comes, who are you grateful to? And you know, this is a touchy subject. If we don't like talking about grief, we really don't like talking about God. But for me, um, it has been a wonderful exploration. I've got this chapter in drink called wrestling with the God thing and I wrestle with the whole my spirituality all the time and you know who am I grateful to is is, a, is an interesting question that doesn't deserve an answer or need an answer but for me it's one I wrestle with.
2: Oh, That's mm-hmm. a good question. Mm-hmm. Well I wrestled with that too Anne in the rooms you know when you had to find a higher power it was a I, since I no longer wanted to lie right. I felt like I, I needed to really figure it out you know because I knew that by being fake and that's how I felt when I ran my business I felt like I had to be fake nice to everybody that walked in my doors and I, I just felt like a big fraud all the time right. but who are we grateful to I'll, I'm gonna medita- meditate on that I've, I've I've been doing my list for almost two, it'll be two years in about a month And um, it's really, and I resisted that. That was at the suggestion of my sponsor. Um, And because I told her I was willing to go to any lengths, um, I did it, even though I didn't want to. And I'm so glad I did. (laughs) And that just goes to show me, like, when people suggest things in recovery, um, even people who are opposed to going to the rooms or to AA, it's like, if you could just be open to some of these concepts And take what you want from it, right? You don't have to take the whole thing if you don't want. And I'm really glad that I responded to that. And um, how I met Sandra, I don't know if you know this, but I listened to her on the Sense Right Now podcast. She was doing an interview on that podcast. And her story just resonated with me very similar to mine and how she got sober. And I just kept kind of watching her in the home group. And I was like, everything she says and how she writes it, it's just so beautiful. And the way she frames her sobriety, um, she has what I want. You know, and so I invited Sandra to be into our, uh, to come into a gratitude circle, and we've been doing that like a year and a half now, Sandra. hmm I think yeah. so. With about eight other women, and it's been really powerful. It's been a wonderful tool. Um, wow. But I can see how it could help you through grief, um, for sure. Or is that is that where your book is morphing? Is is it morphing into grief or?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's morphing into grief because I'm interested in. The intersection of gratitude and grief. And, you know, mm-hmm. it sounds like with the death of a friend, you know, that you're no stranger.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we've had a lot of, of death this year. Yeah. My husband's brother passed away, too, from this disease. And it was, um, it's been hard. It's been a really hard year. But... um yeah. that Not that this is, but making a list or, you know, I share it publicly, which, you know, could be looked at like, you know, why don't you get your ego in check? But I don't know. I get such a positive response to, to my list. I get so many messages from other women who, um, just want to talk about sobriety and recovery and how could you put this out there and why you put your days on there. Like they're still in early sobriety or just trying to figure it out. Um, and it's really, I don't know. I think it's just, a, I think it's an extension of the 12th step for me and that's how I look at it and that's how I look at this podcast too and how I reconcile not being anonymous and, and kind of um, recovering out loud. I think it's just so powerful. I do too. Yeah. Well,
0: good for you. I had no idea you shared it daily. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have to get on that list. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a little info on it. Um,
0: I'd love to see it.
2: Well, Sandra, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Or, Anne, do you have anything you want to share or promote or anywhere you're going to be that you want to share?
0: Um, No, I don't think right now anywhere I'm going to be. I just want to, um, you know, thank you for the opportunity to talk about drink, um, which is so dear to my heart, and to be part of that huge, wonderful circle of women, the tribe, as you call it, you know, um, it, it means the world to me that although we have a border that separates us, that we have this ability to be able to feel a part of a tribe. And, um, it's just, I've found it very heartening to talk to you.
2: Oh, thanks you for agreeing. Been... Anne. I was, yeah. a little, I have to say, I was a little bit nervous. And <laughs> then, um, Sandra and I talked the other day and she, uh, we were talking about, um, just how sobriety can be a great equalizer for people and how you can kind of calm down and talk to someone who's in recovery. It's like you can cut all the bull, right? (laughs) You just get right down to it. And that happens all the time for me. And so not that you're not this author that I admire you are, but you're also another person in recovery. And that helps equalize things to hopefully, you know, have kind of a nice, normal conversation without me freaking out. (laughs) 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 So at the end of our podcast and we ask about three tools in your recovery toolbox, do you, yeah. do you have any of those to share? Or were those shared earlier with your writing, with your creative um, tools?
0: No, I, I'm going to share my three oh, good. tools. And so number one, top of the list, top of the charts is my gratitude list. Ah. No, no doubt about it. Um, that is number one. Um, number two, I'm going to say is my journal Um number two is my journal in the sense that writing is so writing's my middle name writing is the thing that keeps me on this earth and inspired and I can't imagine my life without it so that's a tool I I'm in many ways wrote my way into recovery but the third the third tool I would have to say is the 12 steps and is my community my large rec- community of um Sponsees, sponsor, um, and, um, ability to know that I can show up at a meeting and talk about this just about anywhere in the world at any time I want and find community. And that is, um, so the female tribe, whether they're in the rooms or outside of the rooms, the female tribe is, is my third tool and I'm so grateful.
2: I love love it. I love it. Female sober tribe. they're strong, right? I mean Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That's what yeah. we're trying to build. Every here time too. you
1: say it I get little I get little goosebumps. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Me too.
1: <laughs> oh.
2: Thank you so much, Anne. I look forward I hope I get to run into you again in person and to cost you at a Starbucks like I did in New York
1: please do. <laughs> and I, have to, I have to tell you one last thing. Today is my daughter's ninth birthday. So I will forever remember your sobriety birthday. No kidding.
2: I know. Isn't that cool? I That's love the, the universe. So I know. <laughs> I love that. Aww. Oh my goodness. Chloe uh, and Anne's birthday today. Uh, I like it.
0: Uh, <laughs> I
2: love it. All right. Oh, have a great rest of your day, Anne. Thank you so much and happy birthday.
0: Thank you. Keep in touch. Right. All right. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. The Unruffled podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by NMMD. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designer Chris Aguirre. Thanks for listening.